Please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And as you're turning there, do you remember these words? Do you remember these words? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, acting like their father. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we get ready to enter into the third chapter today of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, let's remember where we started. As Jesus began teaching his disciples that day on the hillside, he began with these statements that went right at the heart of the legalistic, man-centered religious practice of the day. It's actually the poor in spirit, those who know they fall short and are in need of rescue, they get the kingdom. It is truly those who mourn because they've acknowledged and confessed that they are sinners before a holy and just God. It is they who receive comfort from that same God. It's the meek, those who are happy to submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ, who will rule and reign with him one day. It is those who understand that the righteousness they need to stand before the Lord has to come from somewhere outside of themselves, from someone outside of themselves. It is they who will ask and receive that righteousness by grace through God, through Jesus Christ. It is those whose eyes have been opened to the, these truths, who have desired, uh, who have a desire and a compassion to show mercy to others who are also sinners, remembering the great mercy that they have been shown by our merciful God. But the children of our merciful God also receive pure hearts as a gift of His grace, not as the result of their effort or their personal awesomeness. And those who know where their purity comes from, will one day see the one who will purify us completely when we see him face to face. And basking in this peace that God has granted us, not just peace of mind, but true peace with the God whom we were previously warring against in our sin. It's because we know and enjoy this peace with God, we, we long to also see others at peace with him. And so just like our Father, we become peacemakers as well. And finally, because we treasure the treasures of heaven, because Christ is our greatest prize, as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we can even endure persecution with contentment, joy, rejoicing that we would be counted worthy to suffer shame in his name, in the name of Christ 
our Lord and our Savior, identifying with Christ in his suffering, which we learn and know only confirms to us all the more that we will also get to share in his glory in the kingdom. All of this is nothing of our own doing. And all of this is God's gracious, loving choice. We're we're all sinners. We deserve death, hell. That would be fair for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even while we were yet sinners, God's love for us was put on display in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He who is without sin, dying for our sin. The one who is just, being our justifier. And the word says, if you'll confess your sin, agree with God that you're a sinner, you'll call on the name of the Lord uh, for, for your salvation, you will be saved. Made a new creation in Christ. Given a new heart. Given eternal life. With no sickness, no death, no sin. In perfect fellowship with God forever. When the gospel, when the gospel is fresh on our hearts and minds, it is really hard to be legalistic and judgmental. We could read through a passage like this today and and get judgmental about how judgmental other people are. Can you believe them? And the, the more we know about righteousness and sin, the easier it can get to find fault. To whom much is given, much is required. And yet, knowledge of the truth should not puff us up. Faulty knowledge might puff us up. But Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them, that's us, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so we begin our time together today before we jump into a passage on judgmental thinking, judgmental living. We must start our time today as we have with the gospel. We know we, we don't belong on any pedestal. Nor, nor is anyone here growing in righteousness outside of God's grace. That's why we're not to be judgmental. Like we're better than anyone else. And that's why we do discern right from wrong. And help one another in love and humility. Giving help and receiving help. We all need this. And we see these things in this passage today. We're going to see in these verses today that that we need to avoid two extremes. One extreme, that of thinking that I'm so awesome that I can take the place of God as the judge and a scrupulous one at that. 
and the other extreme of thinking, I have no place to say anything to anyone else. Thereby robbing them of encouraging their repentance and their growth and their their well-being and their joy. So let's start in Matthew chapter 7, verse verse 1. And this, this verse, this statement serves as it is a statement that will be expounded upon, explained in detail in the following verses. So it's almost like this is the header for what's to come, okay? So Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. This is one of those verses that gets misquoted and, and taken out of context often, doesn't it? Uh, to the point that if a person should ever disagree with someone, if they would tell someone that they were doing what they're doing is wrong, what you're doing is hurtful, they might pull this verse out and say, in response, judge not that you be not judged. It's in the Bible. And there's a couple of reasons why that's not a good understanding. That would not be a right interpretation of this verse. One, uh, number one, the rest of the context in this very passage, if you just keep reading down, the context of this very passage encourages helping your brother to repent once you have been willing to repent yourself. Uh, Later in the passage, we even see the use of pigs and dogs as illustrations for people who refuse to be helped. And you couldn't possibly attribute those kinds of qualities to people without being able to discern that there's something wrong going on in their responses. So in the context itself, it negates that idea. And number two, Jesus himself in John seven twenty four says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. Now, Jesus doesn't sin, and he certainly does not contradict himself. So, so what's going on here? And the word judge means to separate, to, to choose, to select, or determine. We're discerning between these things. And the severity and the finality of these actions, when you use the word judge, it can range widely from just a simple observation and assessment to the rendering of a verdict. Judging. Guilty, not guilty. And then the punishment that would have come afterward. So there's a wide range there. And how would we discern or judge which kind of judging is going on in a sentence? Well, by the context. By the context. Remember, words get their meaning in their context. This is a super important thing for us to remember. A great thing for us to learn as we consider how we read the Bible, how we study the Bible, how we use Bible verses in our life. There have been so many verses over the years that were taken out of context and therefore misunderstood. And there are not multiple meanings to the same verse for multiple people. Okay, I can't take this out of the context and decide that this is what it means for me today in this situation when what it means is what it meant. It's important that we understand how we interpret the Bible in this way. And the meaning is God's, right? The intended meaning is the meaning. So what it means is what it's supposed to mean, and it's what it meant. And it means what it means in its context. In its context. And then number three. A third reason uh, why it's not right to understand this verse to be a command against 
uh, lovingly rebuking someone. The, the third reason this verse is not forbidding any of us from telling something or someone that they're wrong is because that argument in and of itself is, is self-defeating. This is kind of a funny thing, but by that I mean this. If someone sees you doing wrong and they tell you, you're doing wrong, and you respond by saying, you can't do that, you're wrong. Judge not that you be not judged. What have you just done? What just happened there? If it's wrong to tell people they're wrong, then you can't tell them they're wrong for telling you that you're wrong. Because it would be wrong to tell people that what they're doing is wrong. Right? It doesn't make sense, does it? It's self-defeating. What becomes clear as we read through this passage is that this, this judgment that is being forbidden by Christ is a judgment of condemnation. It is this holier-than-thou, self-righteous, standing-in-the-place-of-God condemnation of others. Uh, such as is found in Luke 18, uh, 9 through 14, where it says, and it's, it's he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves a self-righteousness that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. And here's the parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you this man, that tax collector went down to his house justified, declared not guilty by the judge rather than the other, that Pharisee who evidently went home with a big proverbial beam in his eye. He said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, This kind of judgmentalism, it even stands out in a starker contrast when compared to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, That chapter on love, verses 4 through 7 say, say this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A judgmental heart demands immediate responses and perfection. A loving heart believes that God's promise to complete the work he started in us 
is just as true for others as it is for them. A judgmental heart takes pride in its own self-defined, self-articulated accomplishments. A loving heart remembers where the grace came from for true growth. A judgmental heart thinks it has arrived and feels justified being irritated with others who don't act the same way. A loving heart knows they're still growing and therefore has patience for others who are on this same journey. A judgmental heart feels and sometimes says out loud even, how could you do this to me? No matter what the nature of the sin was or of their friend or family or who it was even directed toward. It's about them. A loving heart sees sin or the potential for wrongdoing in their loved one and has a concern for their soul, for their well-being, which urges them to reach out in hope. A judgmental heart gets excited from seeing others fail because it makes them feel superior. A loving heart weeps with those who weep and points hurting souls to their only true source of hope. A judgmental heart is impatient with others who won't comply with their personal agenda and mission. A loving heart is willing to endure hardship, even risking a harsh response from time to time, because they believe God's promise to progressively sanctify their brother, their sister in Christ. Verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Remembering that Jesus is teaching these things to his disciples, we need to be thinking of the way that, that God has said he's going to judge his children, Christians. If we were to judge people in a self-centered, a self-righteous, a condemning, maybe even a, just a nitpicky way, what passages might we think of that would help us to understand some of the ways that God would measure things out to us in a similar, a similar way that we measure things out to others? So you might think of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that uh, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In Hebrews 12, it says this in verse 7, uh, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Uh, we know this, there is not punishment for our sin from God, but God is working in us to conform us and to shape us into Christ's likeness. And so uh, when we lovingly discipline our children, we're trying to correct them and set them straight for their good and for their joy, Right? This is how God treats his children. So we might say this, since we uh, do believe the Bible teaches that sanctification is progressive, perhaps if we believe that sanctification should be a little bit more instantaneous than others, right? Like we think the progression for us, it's okay if it goes like this. For others, we might think they should be growing like that. Maybe God might uh, give us some discipline to help us grow as fast as we think others ought to. 
Now, beyond discipline, though, even in this life, there is also a judgment that we await before the Lord. Not a judgment against our sin. Christ has already taken our punishment on himself. There is therefore now no condemnation for us before God, but our works will be judged. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In 1 Corinthians 3, he explains it this way, this judgment. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. You see those two departments there? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. He says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work uh, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, the gold, silver, precious stone would survive fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, uh, but only as through fire. So our judgment before Christ will judge our works. All we did for Christ will remain. And to be a reward. How amazing is that? God's going to reward us for what we did in his grace in this life. Everything else will be burned away. How amazing is that? Gone. After this judgment, all that will be left is the good. And nothing bad or wrongly motivated will be left. And we will be freed from that which was selfish and sinful forevermore. What an amazing promise. In that moment, in that moment, if we were to stack up all our works prepared to be revealed by fire, if the quote-unquote good things we did, if they were motivated by perhaps a self-righteous desire to be better than others, uh, with a judgmental, a legalistic attitude, not being mindful of the gospel, but trying to gain the praise of man, or being motivate, not being motivated by the, uh, the attitude of the Beatitudes, not done in love, perhaps we'll be surprised by just how many things, how many good things we did that will turn out to be nothing more than wood, hay, and straw in that day. With the judgment we pronounce, we will be judged. Church, may we remain gospel-centered, Christ-centered in our worship, in our thinking, and remember to love because he loved us. He first loved us. Uh, Verse 3 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? This is an interesting passage. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Quite the illustration, isn't it? The word for speck could refer to a a small piece of chaff or a small piece of wood uh, from as small as just like a little particle to as big as maybe a toothpick. So you get the idea there of what the speck looks like. The log or the beam 
on the other hand, this word refers to the piece of wood that would stretch the length of a building. The, the beam that was used to hold up the roof. So this isn't just any piece of wood. This is a beam of wood that holds the whole roof in place. This, this is supposed to be ridiculous, right? This illustration is ridiculous. But let's think about this for a second. We've got some beams here. I gotta take off my glasses because this wouldn't fit under my glasses. Think about how strong my neck would be if I could hold this up. But I wouldn't. But here I am with this beam in my eye and I look out and I see, oh hey, John! Hey there, John! Oh! You got, my glasses are off so I can't hardly see you. But if I could, you got a, you got something in your eye. There, John. What's your problem? That's kind of gross. What are you doing around me with that speck? That's disgusting. What's your problem? What is that? And if I come to love this beam of mine, if I think this is how great Christians are, guess what I'm going to do? To, if, if I'm going to call you a great Christian, guess what you have to have in your eye? Because you've got to be like me. And if we have enough of us who agree that this beam is just amazing in my eye, and your eye, other people may come around and they see what's going on and we go, you know, that, that person, they're not like us. I'm not sure they belong here. And by God's grace, maybe they don't. If we were to have that kind of an attitude. Does that make sense? We turn these beams into uh, the grid through which we discern, by which we judge whether a person is spiritual or not. That's, that's a bad reversal, a bad exchange of glory, isn't it? And this, this is the picture that Christ paints. It's a ridiculous one, but a very pointed one, uh, for sure. So here's the deal. We know this. We all have specks in our eyes. We've all got something. Uh, sin has not been fully and entirely eradicated from our hearts. No one on this side of heaven has their eyes completely cleared out. And sometimes it feels like as soon as something goes out, like, woo, yeah, I've got repentance, I've got growth, I've got change, and then all of a sudden there's like a new speck that comes in its place, right? Something that we didn't even see before because we were so focused on the other one. But but what is this beam supposed to represent? What is the beam? Is the beam some sort of heinous sin? The beam representing maybe murder or some kind of abuse or uh, some other big sin that most people wouldn't wouldn't think of as a speck? You know, there's the little sins, which are all the ones that I do, and then there's the bad ones that other people do, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. If you think about it, even even those kinds of heinous sins that other people do, Society knows that they're terrible and, and even unbelievers would try to hide those things from, from the public. The beams that we might wear in our eye, we wear proudly and count others as, as spiritual and wonderful as us if they share the same beam. So it's not that. What is this beam? And it makes sense in the context of this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what was the contrast of the Beatitudes? Instead of poor in spirit, I'm something. Instead of meek, 
I am my own boss, my own captain. What were those scribes and Pharisees looking for when they read their Bibles? How to, how to be saved, how to please God? His glory or, or, or what they could and couldn't get away with while still maintaining their perfect record that they thought they had? What motivated the religious leaders to pray, to fast, to give? Was it love and worship? Or was it to impress people, to gain the praise of man? What is that beam? It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Rooted in self-centeredness. Rooted in pride. Uh, We judge in a judgmental, condemning way when we think we've arrived and are better than others. When when our supposed arrival has, has made us feel that we are now some sort of authority. We've written new laws that, that we already keep, of course, or, or we turn a blind eye to when we don't for ourselves, not for others. But we feel justified in criticizing others for not keeping those laws. The beam, that log, is self-righteousness. And our righteousness, we know this, comes through Christ And so Jesus rightly says in verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So good news, that log, that beam of wood, can be taken out of our eyes. Praise God. Let's leave those beams where they belong, up in the building. We don't want to take those home with us. Leave them here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we remember the gospel and and throw self-righteousness aside, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, then two wonderful things happen. One, we see clearly. And not to criticize, but to help our brothers and sisters fight against sin in their lives. And we even become receptive when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God even through the ministry of other people to sharpen us. We then, when the beam is gone, we see clearly we can help others and others can help us. What an amazing idea. That was God's idea. But that's impossible in isolation. And I don't mean just staying home by yourself all the time. I mean just putting the walls up, even when you're with people. It's impossible in isolation. It's really hard without openness and vulnerability. It's impossible without humility and love. Ephesians 4 encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And that bearing with one another in love is not like, I can't believe all these crazy people, they drive me nuts, but I'll, hit, I'll stick around. That's not bearing with one another. It's engaging with one another, loving one another, encouraging one another as we grow And later on in Ephesians 4, it calls 
that we are called to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, all of us, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, Galatians 6, two, uh, 6, 1 and 2 shares a similar command. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, Jesus knows us well. Jesus knows us well, and he knows that we're going to be prone to whiplash from one extreme to the other, one direction to the next, kind of like Peter when he he wouldn't let Jesus wash his feet at all, and, and then he wanted Jesus to wash everything, right? Just boom, boom, back and forth so quickly. And just like we might have gone from being judgmental to not being willing to say anything, even though when we see clearly we should seek to restore people in a spirit of gentleness, we also might swing from the extreme of not being willing to say anything to being willing to say everything repeatedly, regardless of how the person's responding. Which brings up verse 6. Verse 6, another interesting illustration. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, as we begin to think through this verse, we need to make sure that we've got the right kind of pigs and dogs in mind. Okay? When we think of pigs, we might have this in mind. We might have this in mind. That is some pig. Here's good old Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. Okay? A cute little piggy. But the Jews did not have pet pigs. (laughs) And they didn't raise them for bacon. So the pigs around them would have been at least semi-wild. They would have been scavengers, dirty animals like the wild boar in this picture. That dude is in trouble, by the way, isn't he? And when we think of dogs, especially today, we, we, we've almost made them like they're the same level as our children. I, I know dogs who have their own social media account. I don't know how they do that, but... But we might think of cute little puppies like these ones. Those would make some nice coats. (laughs) But the Jews didn't keep their pups like we do. They would have also been wild, dirty scavengers. More like, more like this. You're not going to keep that in your house, right? If you throw a nice little bed in your living room next to the fireplace, that thing's not going to last very long. You get the idea? When the dogs licked up Jezebel's blood off the ground in 1 Kings 21, they didn't just lick up her blood. That's all that was left to lick up when they were done with her. And so Jesus is saying here, when you're helping who you perceive to be a brother or sister 
in Christ. You're trying to help them out in their faith, helping them to grow, sharing the gospel, bearing with one another in love, working towards righteousness and fellowship together. If you offer that sacred trust and relationship, you give of yourself for their benefit, leaving yourself vulnerable and open, and they turn on you, and they trample that precious treasure under their feet, and turn to attack you, perhaps even with the information you gave them. You don't give them what is holy. You don't, you don't have to give pearls to swine. It was totally worth it to try. Worth it to try. But you don't continue to knowingly offer them what they will disregard and use against you. Or what they will disregard before they turn against you. Now, Proverbs 9.8 says this, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, is a, it's a head scratcher. Uh, verse 4 and 5 say this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own sight. Answer a fool. Answer not a fool. Which one is it? What do we do? And I think at least in part what this means, these verses, uh, we lovingly confront a person. We want to lovingly confront them when they do something foolish, sinful. And then if when we realize that they're a fool and that they're going to continue to act in their foolishness, we do not then enter into that foolishness by continuing to debate it with them. We aren't to turn into dogs or pigs to convince them of their dogness or their pig-like qualities. That won't work that way. But what do we do? I think a great example is found in the Apostle Paul, who after having the gospel rejected by the Jews in Corinth, the Jews heard the gospel from him, he went to them first, they rejected the gospel, and he said in Acts 18, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. But later, writing from Corinth, from Corinth to the Romans. In Romans 9, he writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We may not throw our pearls to the swine, But that doesn't mean we can't still pray and hope for their repentance, ready to forgive, eager for their restoration, or even their salvation. Because we do also remember who we are. Paul was one of those Jews who had hated Christ and turned on Christians to tear them apart. We remember the gospel in our own lives. So we remember to stay off of that pedestal. Keep the beam out of our eye. Looking to Jesus. 
and therefore striving to hope for the best. So church, may God give us grace to see clearly. Let's put any and all self-righteousness aside so that we can see clearly. Having that log in our eye impairs our view of God. It impairs our view of ourselves. It impairs our view of fellow church members. It impairs our view of the lost. we, We will think that God is somehow lesser and we are greater. We will think that we are something special. More than the truth of who we are. We'll look at other church members and think that they're here for our good pleasure. We'll look at the lost and say, how could they do something so dumb like that? How could they act this way? Why would they value those things? They're lost. And we want to see God as He is. Yes? We, we want to worship Him in the splendor of His holiness and enjoy Him forever. We want to know who we are in truth and who God is making us to be by His loving grace as we look forward to that day when we see Christ face to face and are made to be just like Him forevermore. We want to have a sincere and deep love for one another to pursue Christ together as a family. Boy, so many things maybe we've had, we've experienced, we've seen happen, and we think growing together is actually harder. But what does God's Word say? Growing together is better than growing separately. God's design is that we grow together. And we want to see the world around us not as a nuisance to our life, a life of ease, a life of comfort, or as a threat to our way of life. We don't want to see the world like that. We want to see the world as a field, ready for harvest. When we look at the world, we want to see people, souls, who just like us. Well, they believe this, and they believe that, and they do this, and they do that. Just like us. They need to have their eyes opened and their heart changed by the truth of the gospel in Christ Jesus. So church, may we, by God's grace, keep looking to Jesus. Let's keep those beams out of our eyes so that we will see clearly and lovingly minister to one another and to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, you are the judge. You have the authority. You have the power. You are all righteous, perfectly just. And you know our sin. So God, we praise you and thank you for your love your mercy, your grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for his sacrifice, willingness to die in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, that we would be freed, that we'd be made your children, that we'd be able to grow and do right things for the right reason. 
God, may we always remember that no matter how far we've come, no matter how much we've grown, that this is a work of your majestic grace, that you receive all the glory, honor, and praise, and that you intend for us to turn this good you have done in us uh, towards others for the same reason, that they would grow and be changed by the truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray that if, if there should be some beams in our eyes or if they, if they get lodged in there every once in a while, may we continue to look to Jesus. We pray, Lord, for your grace that these, any beams that would be there would be removed. Lord, help us to see clearly, to be happy to receive help, to be happy to give help, that we would grow in unity, in righteousness, as a body, for our good, our joy, for your glory, and that even in our growing, even in the love that we have for one another, we would be a bright, shining light that welcomes others who need this great grace and salvation. And we pray this, Lord, to your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen.